We're in James chapter 1, verse 12. Let's pray. So Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your presence, for your goodness, your anointing. We ask in this time, Lord, you would move and speak and fill us with the power of the Spirit. Come on, we're desperate for you this morning. Lord, more than the words of a man or the word, the intellect of a man, we're asking for the breath of the Spirit. We trust the authority of the Scripture. We cling fast to the words of Peter and Paul when they said that the Scripture is God-breathed. We ask that it minister to us today. Jesus, be exalted. It's in your holy name. Everybody say amen. Amen. Well, last week we talked about St. Anthony, who was kind of the chief desert father. He was a, a monk who sold everything that he had. He was a really uh, rich young man, sold everything that he had to go live in the desert as an intercessor, a man of God. He had a healing ministry, a deliverance ministry, and many came to him for wisdom. We talked a bit about Athanasius, who uh, really fought down uh the heresy Arianism, which was becoming very popular, wildly popular, and Athanasius became the chief defender of the historic faith. Arianism, again, taught that Jesus was created, that he was a lesser God with a little g, and, and true Orthodox Christianity always declared that Jesus was God from eternity past for always, forever, uh, always been. And so as Arianism was on the rise, we talked about St. Anthony, this desert monk, and Athanasius, their friendship as they fought against uh, Arianism. Now, there's a time in Athanasius's life where he's really having a trouble with the Arians, and he's kind of having political debate. And it said that uh, Jerome recorded this, that Anthony, the, the desert father monk, kind of mysteriously comes out of the desert to defend Athanasius. Now, uh, this would have been a big deal because uh, Anthony doesn't just come to town. And so Anthony came to town. He's old. He, again, has this, like, aura about him as being a mystic, this very holy man of prayer. And when Anthony came out, there was a young man in the city named Didymus. Didymus is known in history as Didymus the Blind. He went blind at the age four. Um, and so when Anthony came out and into the city, Didymus the blind came to meet Anthony. And Anthony and Athanasius both became fascinated with this young man who was totally blind, but was also totally brilliant. Now, blindness in this period, we're talking about roughly three, uh, the, the third century has begun, the fourth century has begun. Blindness in this period would have been um, especially difficult. There was no such thing as Braille. Um, or the ability to necessarily learn or become, uh, have skills or trades in society. So think in the New Testament, many times the people begging are blind or lame, right, on the corner. And so blindness was a real problem. Um, Didymus was brilliant because he taught himself to read again, Braille's not a thing, by by taking his fingers and running it across paper and feeling the indentions uh, on the paper or sometimes on wood, uh, he taught himself letters. And now he became not just a great theologian, which he absolutely was, but he became a great theologian. He became a master of philosophy and history, um, was just totally brilliant. And so uh, Athanasius and others, uh, they actually made Didymus the blind, the head of what we would call like the greatest seminary, uh, the greatest uh, catechismal school in the area. And so Didymus the blind became this incredible intellect. 
Now, so much so that Jerome, who was what you would call historically grumpy, okay, we would call Jerome grumpy, um, didn't really like anyone. Uh, Jerome is the one who translated um, scripture into Latin for us. Jerome thought everybody was kind of dumb. Jerome came to like Augustine, and Augustine definitely could go toe-to-toe with Jerome. We have some letters where they're writing each other back and forth. That's really interesting. Um, But Jerome, as an adult, submitted himself to Didymus the Blind, called Didymus his master and teacher, um, sung Didymus' praises, which Jerome didn't sing anybody's praises. Um, So that was a big deal. Now, Didymus was also known to have visions um, and had a few visions that came to pass. And so um, Jerome... Everyone called Didymus Didymus the Blind, and Jerome come to call him uh, Didymus the Seer because of his visions. Now, there's a particular uh, event in Didymus's life that I wanted to draw out. Anthony, uh, the monk, again, the desert father, who is kind of old and holy and mysterious, but loves, again, loves Didymus, thinks Didymus is brilliant, loves Didymus, comes to Didymus one day and says... Um, Jerome recorded this for us. Let me get his words right. He comes to Didymus and says, um, he says, Didymus, you don't regret being blind, do you? And the story goes that, that Didymus kind of just looked at Anthony. He didn't really know how to respond. He was kind of flustered, embarrassed. And so Anthony, again, much older than Didymus, asked him again, Didymus, you don't, you don't regret being blind, do you? And again, he doesn't answer. He's, he's again, a bit embarrassed. Uh, the third time, Anthony says, you don't regret being blind. Didymus responds that he, he kind of confessed that blindness has been a great trial in my life. And, and he said, I struggle with it. I'm, it's, it's a hardship. I'm, I, yeah, regret it. I struggle. And Anthony, the desert father, the, you know, brilliant kind of intercessor responds. Here, I'm quoting you from Jerome. He says, I'm surprised that a wise man should grieve the loss of a faculty or your eyesight, which he shares with ants and flies and gnats, and not rejoice rather in having one of which only saints and apostles have been thought worthy. Jerome drives home the point. From this story, you may perceive how much better it is to have spiritual than carnal vision. So Anthony the monk says to Didymus, who's been blind his whole life, has had to persevere through incredible hardships. Didymus actually, in, in, again, blindness was an issue. So in theological training, sometimes he's called the, like the, the forerunner or the forefather of Braille because he, he, he accepted blind students into, into his school and then he taught them to read by carving, again, letters into wood and made them run their fingers across wood. So Didymus has persevered with crazy amounts of perseverance. And and Anthony says, Didymus, insects can see. You see the secret things of God. He says, gnats have vision, Didymus, but you know the heart of the Father. Um, today, as we turn again to James, James is going to return to this, this, this idea of trials. It's a passion of James that the church learned to embrace trials and hardships with perseverance, with the understanding that God shapes us in fire. God shapes us through hardships. Very much what Anthony was saying to Didymus. You, this hardship in your life, Didymus, has shaped you. 
He, again, becomes the chief scholar. Jerome comes and calls him master. This hardship shaped you. There's a perseverance in Didymus that is unmatched. There's a zeal for the gospel and for truth in Didymus that is unmatched. And Anthony says, God shaped this perseverance, this endurance, this brilliance in the midst of your struggle, your trial. Don't regret it. Joy in it. Now, again, that's hard, but we think of James telling us in one of our first sermons in the series, right? James telling us that we should count it all joy when we face many trials. Now, let's read from verse 12 through 18. That's six verses, which is good. You should, you should celebrate. We're going to read six verses and we'll try to again, we're just trying to get into the the mind and heart of James. What was he, the biological half-brother of Jesus who is known as a great man of prayer called James the Just for all of church history. What did James want us to see? Why was he so passionate about these themes? Again, this is going to be a theme we'll return to again. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every gift and every perfect gift, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. First, James pronounced blessing upon those who remain steadfast under trial. Now, this is actually very much the formula of the Beatitudes, how Jesus opens the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, we've studied this before. The word blessed here means happy is the man, or fulfilled, or satisfied is the man. So Jesus opens his longest sermon recorded by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he says things like, blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. 5.8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So Jesus pronounces blessing upon certain characteristics and acknowledges that these characteristics will be rewarded. And it's almost as if James, who very well knows the Beatitudes, stops to add one for us. Like there's something so passionate in James. He's like, let me add an extra little blessing for you. Another beatitude for you. Here it is. Blessed are those who remain steadfast under trial. It's very important that we note it does not say blessed are those who start steadfast because the start's always easy, right? Everyone's fast out of the gate. But blessed are those who remain steadfast under the pressure of trial, of hardship. So again, James wants us to know that Christians are not exempt from trials, but are rather called to remain steadfast under the fire and pressure of trial. 
again, we speculated a bit about what kind of trials the church in Jerusalem that James is writing to, what kind of trials they're experiencing. We know historically that they are experiencing famine in this period. We know that they're experiencing great political pressure, persecution. Uh, Christians are going to be driven out of Jerusalem under political pressure. Uh, it, It could be a million kinds. And it does seem that James doesn't articulate perfectly what trial he's even addressing because it's a universal principle that Christians will experience trials and you need to learn to remain steadfast under them and that Jesus promises a reward to those who persevere. The reward of steadfastness in the fire is the crown of life. So Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. James says, blessed are those who remain steadfast under trial, for they shall receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Douglas Moo, who's a great scholar, points out that the word crown here sometimes refers to like a royal crown that we think but more often than not in in this time period this word's used to describe the wreath that would be placed on a like an olympian an athlete's head when they've finished the race and that seems to be the imagery that james wants you to think of an athlete who has run hard sweat and tired trained persevered exhausted exerted all of their energy and all of the strength endured to the end and as they've 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 come to be victorious. They stand before the multitudes and placed upon their head is the crown, the wreath that symbolizes their strength, their perseverance, their victory. So James seems to be using that imagery and he, and there you think of Paul saying that we need to run our races well. It is helpful to, to recognize this imagery that Paul uses and that James uses a bit here. To, to recognize that when Paul says, I'm going to run my race, beat my body into submission. Even Paul is acknowledging that the call of God on your life does not come, it's not fulfilled lackadaisically. There is a call of God in your life and it will not come to pass if you live your spiritual Christian life with a posture, a kind of a phlegmatic, laid back, put your feet up posture to see come to pass all that God has to come to pass through you. You'll have to live your spiritual life on your toes, leaning in, persevering with the wind in your face, running against the enemy. Think of Paul's imagery. We, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against demonic powers. You got to learn to wrestle. Coach Jeff wants to teach you at the hangar. Got you, bro. You gotta, we, we've gotta recognize that the Christian life we're called to, we're, we, I'm gonna be harsh because it, it's, there's something wrong with me apparently. Um, but again, the, the Western climate, our idea of, of being satisfied and blessed and fulfilled is being comfortable. But that's not the Christian climate. The, the idea of a Christian being satisfied and fulfilled, Listen to Jesus. I've, oh, I'm driving home thinking about this this week. 
something happened, a great testimony. Someone was giving me a testimony that, that someone that we had tried to minister to over the years came to the Lord. It was like a long thing. We had blessed this person, prayed for this person, and they came to the Lord. And I was so excited driving home. And I was thinking about Jesus saying, um, John chapter 4. He's at the, uh, the well with a Samaritan woman. The disciples went to get food. Remember, um, Jesus is standing there ministering to this woman. Uh, Draw me some water. She says, you don't even have a bucket. Uh, you remember Jesus says, uh, it tells her that she's, she doesn't have a husband, but she's had five husbands. The man she lives with now is not her husband. Drink of the water that I give you and you'll never thirst again. And Jesus has this great encounter with this woman. She leaves like full of zeal for Jesus as Messiah. And the disciples come back with food. Do you remember and they try to give Jesus some food and he says, the meat I have to eat, you know, not of. And in other words, I, I am so satisfied in what God just did that food is not even an issue right now. But modern Western Christians, all we think about is comfort. Give me the bread. Let's lean back and eat. And we miss this beauty. Jesus' physical body hungry, but his spirit overflowing with excitement that a Samaritan woman who's lived promiscuous for years just bowed her knee to God, just received Christ Jesus as her Lord. Jesus is so thrilled, filled with spiritual zeal that he's like, what, what bread? Take the bread somewhere else. And, and, and there, we've got to recover this kind of satisfaction, fulfillment for us. It's not, comfort is not our king. Fulfillment for you, church, ought to be seeing drunkards bow their knee to Jesus and find liberty. Seeing addicts come to Christ, being delivered and filled with the Spirit and set on fire with the gospel of Christ Jesus. Satisfaction for you ought to be testimonies of souls coming into the kingdom. But what happens when we make comfort king, we think then that Christianity is supposed to, the goal of Christianity is to make us comfortable. And it's not. Christianity is a race to run. It's a wrestling match to endure. It's a cross to carry. It's a cost to count. And there we've got to learn to endure, to wrestle, to sweat, remembering that Jesus, to the church at Revelation, let me read you this, uh, uh, the church of Revelation to Smyrna, which Smyrna means kind of anointing. It's an oil. It's a fragrance. It's depressing. Smyrna is a church that Jesus doesn't rebuke, but Jesus encourages. In Revelation 2.10, he says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Okay, Christians suffer. Just dealt with that. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. So Christians are persecuted that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. Be willing even to die for the gospel. And I will give you the crown of life. So again, Jesus is using this imagery of the wreath, the crown of life given to the saints that endure political persecution, that endure suffering, that endure hardship for the sake of the gospel. Jesus says, don't quit. I'll give you the crown of life. Everlasting life, unending life. The water that he promised to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. 
Now, we don't have a ton of Didymus the Blind's writings for reasons I don't have the time to explain, but we're starting to uh, recover more. And so we have a few commentaries from Didymus, again, this brilliant man. But Didymus said uh, on our text today, he commented on this passage. He said, the person who has fought the hard battles will be perfectly able to handle anything. In other words, he's saying, endure through the trials that God leads you through because God is making you strong. Someone who comes through his troubles in this way will be duly prepared to receive his reward, which is the crown of life prepared by God for those who love him. So, so Didymus says, persevere through every trial knowing that God is making you like an athlete fit, spiritually fit. And he's also purging your soul, making you holy so that you're ready to fight and ready to receive the reward. So first, James kind of announces this, this extra beatitude, this extra blessing on this church in Jerusalem. He wants them to know that there's going to be trial and hardship. They need to persevere under trial. Blessed, happy, fulfilled, satisfied are those saints who persevere, remain steadfast under trial. They will receive the crown of life which God has prepared. Now, from here, James's line of thought it's not scattered. It seems to be that James is trying to um, unpack, poke at a theme that, that some sa- saints are wrestling with. Here he's going to say, I want you to recognize that trials bring temptation. But to remember that although God may use trials to shape you, God never is the author of the temptation that some are broken by, that breaks you. And so here's the, here's the theme that he's trying to draw out. In the face of the persecution that Smyrna is facing, right? Why does Jesus say that they should endure even unto death? You're going to be thrown into prison. You're going to be persecuted. Persevere. It's as if Jesus is kind of the coach on the sideline, right? You saying, run, run, run. Why do we need to be yelled at to run in the face of trial? Because everything in your flesh wants to quit. Everything in your carnal nature will want to lie down. And so the idea here is that trials are opportunities to be shaped and to persevere and to be made stronger in your faith. They also are opportunities for the enemy, the world, and your flesh to come tempt you to lay down, to quit, and to roll over. And I think in James's day, in his church, again, he's going to be known as a man of great holiness and perseverance. We've told you a hundred times, James is called Camel Need James because he prayed so much that his knees were deformed. And so he's known as a man who knows how to persevere. But as things got hot, it seems very clear that there are some who quit. As things began to heat up, were there people in the first century church who said, this ain't what I signed up for. And, and, and that may be contextually what James is addressing here, but there are, there are other applications to this, this theme in that maybe one of the greatest hardships or trials of your life will be the loss of a loved one, the loss of a spouse. Um, and you, you hit the loss of a spouse, maybe young and too early and it's, and it's, it breaks you. And in that hardship and in that trial, God beckons you to draw near 
in the sorrow. Some of you saints have been through this kind of sorrow where it's like the, 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 the darkest night and God draws near in the secret place. And you would say, this is the hardest season of my life, but I've known God better than I've ever known him at the same time. Others will step into these hard, hard seasons where their soul is broken. And God's saying, come near. And rather than drawing near, they will begin to allow the desires of their flesh to lead. And so in this place of grief and sorrow, they begin to drink a little too much again. Or we see, this is just life, we see people who go through great sorrow and all of a sudden they begin to turn and live sexually promiscuous. Because the breaking point in life becomes an opportunity. It becomes a a fork in the road to step deeper into a place with God. Or to allow the sorrow to, to become an opportunity, this is a strong word so forgive me, or an excuse to begin to turn and allow your flesh to lead. And what James is saying is that some, when they face great sorrow, great hardship, again, pick your sorrow, great trial, rather than leaning into God, they will turn and allow their flesh to lead. And then they get down the road of drunkenness or sexual promiscuity or not coming to church and just throwing their hands up in life and just saying, oh, whatever. They get down the road and then they turn back and they point at God and they say, look what you tempted me to. If you love me, you wouldn't have done this. You broke me. You took my spouse. You took my business. You allowed me to, you allowed the enemy to, to rob me of my joy. Now here I stand in sin, and it's your fault. You led me to this. And James says, I want you to remember, church, that God tempts no one to sin, that the temptation came from your own carnal desires. God may have allowed you to walk into fire, but God's goal was always that you be, you be lured into perseverance. Now, this is where, um, we can, we can kind of hash it out. Notice, Notice James says, blessed are those who remain steadfast under trial, for for God will give them the crown of life. So God is offering you a carrot, right? And and we're not saved by works. That's very clear. No one makes it to heaven because of the the great things they do in their Christian life. You don't make it to heaven because of that. But the Bible does make it clear that we are rewarded for our good works. You won't make it to heaven because you lived well. But Jesus gives like the parable of the talents, right? Steward your gifts and your talents well. And in the kingdom, there will be some who receive greater rewards than others. That's just a plain scriptural principle. Not You don't make it to heaven because of the way that you lived. But some will be rewarded more, more so than others. That's in the scriptures. And so God, God is in the habit of dangling carrots. Jesus is saying, run, 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 I'll reward you. Now, what is Jesus doing? He's trying to entice with a reward your godly desires. And at the same time, the enemy will try to entice with pleasure your carnal desires. And when you get down the road of sin and you've abandoned your call and you're now living in in total sin and rebellion, you don't get to point back at God and say, look what you did. No, God was standing on the sidelines telling you to run saying, draw near to me and I'll 
draw near to you, James says. God was always on the sidelines saying, I'll give you the crown of life. I'll work all things together for your good. I'll, I'll bless you. Keep running the race. So God didn't tempt you to quit. God tempted you to run. James says the, the temptation to quit comes from your own carnal desires, which God calls you to kill. Okay, just because you're walking through sorrow, just because you're walking through financial hardship doesn't mean you get to spend your nights at the bar. Okay, maybe you should spend your nights on your knees. I know that's hard, but that's biblical. Just because you're walking through the greatest tragedy of your life again doesn't mean that you get to lay down and roll over. If you're going to lay down and roll over, lay down and roll over in the prayer closet. And so... Again, the the theme is that God's calling you to kill your flesh. Maybe it's financial hardship, the greatest financial hardship of your life, and your business seems to be falling apart, and God's calling you to cast your cares on Him who cares for you, to walk in faith when it feels like there's instability, to trust God even with your business. But then you become tempted to maybe work some deals that are, that are, that are not above board. Maybe there's a way that you could, you could have a transaction that's not full of integrity that would get you back on track. And if you fall to that, you don't get to then turn to God and say, well, well, you allowed me to walk through this trial. No, God says, I gave you an opportunity to grow in your faith. Then James is going to tell us that God cannot be tempted with sin, therefore tempts no one with sin. So God can't be tempted with sin. Now we're doing theology. We're talking about who God is. And he's explaining to us a bit about what temptation is. He's saying, God has no weakness. Temptation, when the enemy comes to tempt you, he will tempt you in the areas of your flesh where you are weak. He will bait you in the areas, you you know, um, I like to do a little bit of fishing. And uh, sometimes I'm fishing with, with my my teenage boys and we're fishing saltwater and they're fishing bass lures. And I'm like, that's not what they eat. Sometimes they still catch stuff and that makes me feel dumb. (laughs) But, but it's that concept, right? You, the enemy's going to bait you in the places where you have allowed your desires to kind of flirt and to the, the places. Sometimes there's natural inclinations um, but the enemy's going to bait you where you're weak. And so James is saying here, don't forget that God has no soft spot. There's no place where God could be tempted because he's weak in no area. God, God can't be lured into to any form of evil, any form of malice or, or ill intent because God has no soft spot, no weakness. He's, he's, he's holy and pure. So God is unable to be tempted and God tempts no one. God never sees a weakness in your life whether it be for a tendency towards alcoholism, a tendency towards anger. I think there's a, that's a real sin sometimes that men struggle with, is being angry and frustrated. God doesn't then say, you struggle with anger. Let me see if I can tempt you to lash out so that I can then what? Discipline you for God doesn't. God doesn't try to lure you. God may give you opportunities to, to conquer it. But church, hear me, there, if men in the room, if you're struggling with anger, sooner or later, you're going to be in a fight and an argument with your spouse. You're going to have an argument with your boss. And that argument, that trial is an opportunity to, to, to grow out of your immaturity. Sometimes we need the opportunity 
to step outside of our immaturity. And God will bring you the opportunity. But when you lash out and throw a fit and get fired, again, you don't get to point your finger at God. So James is going to conclude this line of thought by reminding us of God's omnibenevolence. His all goodness, his total goodness. Theologically, this theme means uh, benevolence, means good. Omni means infinite. The, the idea that God is good always, that in him, he's the, he's the father of lights, we see here. And in him, there's no shifting shadows. There's no um, variance. He's just perfectly and totally good in all seasons, always towards his children. His mercy and grace are lavished upon you endlessly. Again, no ill intent, no malice, just benevolence. Just charity towards you. Just agape love towards his children. Pure love and goodness. Now, like a good father, um, God's not going to wrap you in bubble wrap. Did you guys see Bubble Boy? I'm, I'm, on a, I'm on a roll with my movie references this week, so the elders might need to discipline me for my movie references. Um, I was teaching the teenagers this week at, at like a, a co-op thing that we do, and I was trying to talk to them about different things, and every movie reference, they were like, no, no, no. <laughs> cool. Awesome. <laughs> um. But God, God is not looking, and, and like parents, right? We're not looking to bubble wrap our kids so that they never have to experience hardship. And when my kids, um, all 46 of them, when they're learning to ride bikes, right, and they fall, you don't, you don't, you don't, you can't coddle all the time, right? You pick them up and you say, that's a little scrape, get back at it, get back at it. And, and, and God is that way with us. He, he's, he's, will allow us to experience hardship. And sometimes you'll totally make a mess of it. And God's still saying, get back up, get back at it, get back up, get back at it. He's not going to bubble wrap you though. And again, that's what we want Christianity to be. I want Christianity to be. That would be awesome. I think I get bubble wrapped in heaven. Okay. I'm pretty sure I will be bubble boy in heaven. Um, but in this life, man, we're going to face trials. We're going to face hardships. God's not going to protect us from every danger around the corner. He's going to teach us to walk through the fire. He'll walk with us in the fire. He'll lead us through the storm. At times, he's going to teach us to rebuke the storm. At times, he's going to teach us to have faith to walk through it. And we need to recognize that, that just because there's a storm shaking around us, that does not mean God doesn't love you. He never promised you perfect peace externally. He promised to teach you to walk in peace internally, even when everything's falling apart. And from there, these are themes that, that again, can be hard. But from there, he's going to tell us God is light in him. There's no darkness at all, no variance, no shifting shadows, just light, just light. And, and, He's good and his plans are good for us. And so he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And that, that scripture we love. And then you get like a cancer diagnosis and you're like, God, what are you doing? Then your marriage starts falling apart and you just cannot seem to have a conversation with your spouse that doesn't fall apart or work gets rough or whatever. You have a kid that goes wayward. And you've got to lean in and trust that God is leading. 
that he is going to work all things together for the good. And many people, again, they, they get the bad diagnosis and they lay down and roll over and they quit on their faith and they say, I tried Christianity and it didn't work. How is God ever going to work anything out of this mess? And I want to say, well, you're never going to know if you lay down. You have to get up and persevere and trust their opportunities of faith. Now, this scripture really reminds you of John, First John 1, 5. You remember when John said, uh, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So John says that God is pure, he is holy, he's brilliant light, and in him there's not a sliver of darkness. There's not an ounce of malice. And so one thing we struggle with is like your biological father may have been a great man with an anger problem. Um, God's just a great God, right? There's no anger problem on the end. Or, or your biological father was a, was a good dad who sometimes got physical, like God's just good. There, there's, this is the theological theme they want you to see. There's no, he's, he's beautiful and awesome, but it's, he's, he's just pure. He's just holy. He's just wonderful. He just has good plans for you. He just has good intent towards you. Not going to bubble wrap you. They're going to be hard seasons. But God's always on the side saying, keep running. He's always trying to lure us with, with, with blessing and with, with final reward. He's never hoping for your demise. He's never, I told you so. And he never celebrates when you fall back into sin. I just quickly, just, there, there are some in the room who maybe there was some major physical abuse from your biological father. There was, there was, there was a, a realm of, of, of maybe what felt like discipline, but was too far. There, there are some in the room of you experienced physical trauma and you're struggling to, to shift out of that and shift into recognizing God as a good, kind father. If that's you, I want to invite you to the altars as we get ready to open. I won't call you out now in the middle, um, but I want to ask you to, to be willing to address that issue. I think God's highlighting it now. He wants to address that issue in you. Finally, James says, God brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be his first fruits. So God in his goodness, he brought us forth. He called us out. He drew us out of darkness into light. He caused us to be reborn and recreated so that we might be a first fruits of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, God in his goodness, he chose you. He called you. He has drawn you not to destroy you, but so that you might be a first fruit, a type. You might put on display the, the new creation that God is after. When all is said and done, he renewed you for holiness. He called you for blessing and life. He called you for joy to be, to be bright like him. He did not call you just to destroy you. So Anthony comes to Didymus and says, you don't regret being blind, do you? And Didymus ashamed because he has 
He has struggled with his blindness. He has felt a sense of regret, a sense of wishing that it never would have happened. And Anthony says, no, Didymus, if you weren't blind, you, you would never carry the measure of perseverance, the measure of strength that you carry, the measure of discipline and focus that it takes to teach yourself to read when there's no such thing as braille the discipline and focus it required of you to sit down and learn letters with your finger it's the same discipline and focus you bring to your theological work it's the reason why the greatest theologians of the world come and call you their master because you're so sharp and intelligent no you you didn't have the sight that gnats have but what you do have is great perseverance discipline focus wisdom and you could point your finger at god and say why didn't you give me physical vision and god says no but look what i did give you in the fire lean persevere we are not called to quit let me let me let me pray over the word and I want to hit a few things quickly. We'll step into a time of ministry. So Lord, in Jesus' name, we ask that for those in our body in this season, God, who are facing real trial, those in our body who are facing bad diagnoses and financial hardship and marital problems or Issues with their children, Lord, we ask that you would cause them to rise up with strength, with the power of the Holy Spirit. We say to you, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And Father, we ask that you would refine us, you would make us a church, a family, a people who carry in our hearts precious silver and gold and jewels, that on the last day we wouldn't stand before you with all of our life's work being rubbish, burn up wood, hay, and stubble. We thank you that you are doing something in us. We don't always like it, God, but we thank you for it. We celebrate that you are shaping us even in the fire. We love you, Jesus. We say, have your way with us. We say, comfort's not our king. What satisfies us is your will being done in this region, in our children, In Jesus' holy name we pray. And all the saints say amen.